This morning is Sunday. It is November 30th, 2008. Our message this morning is kingdom and righteousness. Two words, kingdom and righteousness. By the way, there's a big section in your bulletin called the pastor's corner. It's blank so that you can write notes in it. Because my hope is that what I spoon feed you today, you will chew on and add to all week. And maybe, just maybe, you could place a phone call to me at some point and say, you know, Pastor, you mentioned this Scripture, but I read this and this and look what God showed me and then I could learn from you and our relationship would not just be a one-way street. Uh, what I want in my life, what I believe is a healthy church, is that people bring something to contribute beyond just money. They bring parts of their lives to contribute. I'm blessed when I see... Nick in a dance-off, or Gabe making a video, or hear that Lindy swung a golf club in her ninth month of pregnancy. I'm blessed at all the things you do, and I love it, but nothing cheers me more than to see that you are learning to receive from God yourself. I learned a, a, a phrase called sage on a stage. The educators in my life were describing a kind of teaching. We don't want sage on a stage in here. We don't want one person who is responsible for instructing all the others and you sit and soak. What we're looking for is a living, breathing, active community of believers that are all contributing to each other's lives. And please don't exclude me because we need each other. Amen? Amen. Are you all in the first chapter of Exodus? Yes. And what's our message today? Kingdom and righteousness. Now you know what I need to do? Turn to the first chapter of Exodus. Now, we're going to cover something that we're going to call the situation so that you'll understand the situation. In the 11th verse, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them. Isn't it interesting that right here we don't hear anything other than they put slave masters over them to impress them. You don't know who they is and you don't know who them is, do you? I mean, you would if you read the whole book, but I purposely just pulled this out of context. Does it matter whether we're talking about Caucasians and African Americans? Does it matter whether we're talking about American Indians or Muslims and Christians? When we say they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, doesn't that strike at your heart regardless of who they is and who them is? Because we know inherently none of us want a slave master over us oppressing us, right? So whether we are the they or the them, this is a bad thing, isn't it? Yeah. Something that God doesn't like. So they, Egyptians, put slave masters over them to oppress them, Israelites, with forced labor. Say that with me. Forced labor. Forced labor. We were made to work. All of us were. We're, we're made to work and to desire to accomplish and all those things. But... What God gave us as a unique innate ability to want to work and accomplish takes on a whole new meaning when someone is forcing you to work in a way that you don't want to. How many of you look at your jobs that way? But you signed up there to work there, didn't you? You agreed to work for a certain wage, didn't you? See, I find it ironic, and it happens to me. It's a six to 18 month cycle. Six months of honeymoon on the job. Isn't this wonderful? They love me, I love them. Six months of getting proficient at the job, but it's getting monotonous. And by the end of the 18th month, it seems oppressive and I'd like to do something new. As we develop maturity, we don't find that. This is not this situation. 
This is a situation where people are literally being put in chains and beaten and killed for not doing their work. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. You ever called your boss a slave master? You might be wrong. And they built Pithon and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Worked them ruthlessly. What would be an example of working someone ruthlessly? Did they just have to miss their smoke break? What is working ruthlessly? Do you think maybe that's without food or water, without concern for injury, without concern for age? Maybe jobs that are not task appropriate? I mean, would it be right to have Rebecca dragging around 100-pound slips? Probably not. But when you're ruthless, you don't care because the people are expendable to get what you want. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the field so that all their hard labor, the Egyptians treated them ruthlessly. That's the situation. One group of people is being oppressed by another. They are being forced into bitter situations through ruthless treatment. So tell me something. What would you do in that situation? If you're in a situation where you're being treated sinfully, if you're in a situation where someone is treating you ruthlessly, what do you try to do? Find a better situation, right? You might even cry out if you have no power to someone with power for help. This is the heart of many of the Psalms that say some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. This is the heart of the Bible. A God who hears the cry of the oppressed people. Turn to the third chapter. You'll hear Him say it. Third chapter, seventh verse. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out. He has heard them crying out. Because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. He heard what was happening and He came to rescue them. He goes on to talk about how uh, He'll set them free from their enemies who have given them bitter treatment and forced them to labor. What an amazing thing. The Bible begins with a story about a nation of people who are oppressed. A people group who are beaten down with something. And says, I'm going to make you into a different kind of nation. And I'm going to take you out from under your oppression. Isn't that an amazing thing? That ought to give us some hope when we're in a situation that we feel like is unfair. Bria, you ever been in a situation you thought was unfair? Yeah, me too. How about you, Debbie? Ever a situation unfair? When we cry out to God, we have a God that hears the cry of the oppressed. Period. You remember when I said it didn't matter who the they and the them were? It doesn't matter. He hears the cry of the oppressed. Did you ever feel like God liked you better than someone else? What do we do with the Scriptures that say God doesn't show favoritism? Yeah, but He likes the way I act better than them, so He likes me. He likes to rescue the oppressed. That's what He likes to do. Hmm. Let's turn to Exodus 2 then. Because what I find out is that in Christianity, we don't often set our heart on malicious purposes. Most of the time, I'm not thinking, you know, how can I really just foul up Mario's life? Is there a way that I can cheat Charlotte out of some money? Those things don't come to us. They do come to the lost. I mean, a lost person will literally think, how can I get what's in Steve's pocket, out of his pocket, and into mine? But in the kingdom, that's not our thought. 
the way that we get into trouble is we set our mind on a kingdom goal. Right? Something good for God. Something that God would want to do. But we go about it the wrong way. Start with me in Exodus 2. We'll be in the 11th verse. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that way and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. And Moses fled from Pharaoh, and you know some of the rest of the story. Is liberation of oppressed people a kingdom idea? Of course it is. In fact, this is the very thing that God wanted to do. But it was done in the wrong way. Do you think that Moses felt justified in what he did? Do you think he may even have thought God wanted him to do it? But there had to be some significant seed of doubt, didn't there? Because he looked this way, and he looked that way, and he hid the body in the sand. And he became worried that what he had done would become known. Hmm. The right idea and the wrong method of implementation. When we have a goal that is God's goal, we can call that seeking His kingdom. But that's not the only part of that verse. Seek ye first the kingdom and His righteousness. Tell me something. What is another way to say we're going the wrong way? We say, well, it's not right. It's not righteous. There is a right way that we must do things as the people of God. When you think about it, there have been a lot of examples of interesting things throughout history. What was so wrong with Egypt? What was so wrong with the Pharaoh? Well, they were cruel. They were slave drivers. They were violent and oppressive. Moses wanted to fix that problem, didn't he? So he committed a cruel act of violence. Did he fix it? Or did he multiply it? Do you think it was better the day after Moses killed the Egyptian or worse for the people? Worse. Probably worse. What Moses did actually multiplied all of the problems and didn't fix it. There is never a time in which we can act like the world in pursuit of something for God. Never. Now, that seems so elementary, but Constantine drove thousands of people through rivers at the point of a sword so they could become baptized. Does that strike you as slightly carnal? Is it a good idea to want to see thousands of people baptized? Yes. Of course. It's the way that he did it. The right way. Turn with me to Matthew 6. Please turn. Tell me when you're there. you got to let me know you're alive today. I missed you on Wednesday. And now, you know, I feel like I should ask you every few minutes, do you still love me? Do you think I'm pretty? You know? You can have a good and God idea, but the way that you do it is just not God. And so He's not going to take credit for it. It won't fix the problem. It will multiply the problem. In Matthew 6, starting in verse 1, I just want to read you a few verses to illustrate that one more time. 
Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. You mean that you can do something that is God's desire, like give to the needy, with a bad motive to be honored by men? Of course. And He doesn't want it. He does not want it. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Isn't it interesting that those that are pleasing to God and those that are not, regardless, they're giving to the needy? That's a culture that honors God. But even in a culture where you're taught to do the right thing, you can do it with the wrong motive. You ever have a kid that was obedient to you, but their motives were wrong? We call that malicious obedience in the workplace. Say somebody to somebody, I want you to sit in that seat and not move until your work's done. And you come back and they have feed all over their chair. <laughs> but you said... Yeah, that's true. To the letter you were obedient. Do you think you're obedient to the intent? This is what happens to religious people. We become obedient to the letter, but not to the intent. This is a problem. We need to examine this. So that in your giving uh, that may be in secret, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. By the way, trumpets. Do you really think that these men were walking around with trumpets announcing that they give to the poor? I one time met a lady that had a license plate that said Aikai. It was on a brand, brand new Jaguar. I wondered if her horn made that trumpet sound, but it didn't. <laughs> what he means is that there were offering boxes set up for the poor. And because they didn't have security systems in these days, they had very narrow necks so that you couldn't get a hand in it, but wide mouths so it could catch anything that you might throw at it. Interesting idea, huh? But if you took your coins just right and threw them at the plate just right, the bowl, just like those things in the mall, they rattled in it as they went down so that everybody could recognize that you just put something in it. I watched a movie here recently where a man took out his tithe uh, envelope like they do in some churches. He looked to make sure nothing was in it, sealed it, wrote his... I don't think he wrote his name on it, but wrote something on it, and then where his family could see him, put it in the offering because he wanted his family to believe he was tithing. Even if there had been something in the envelope, God couldn't honor it. Because his motive was that his family see that he's doing something, not that he show God his trust. Back to this idea that you can do something that is good, but with a wrong method. I was only 18 years old. I'd been born again for about three days, so forgive me. My motive was to see everybody experience what I had just experienced. And those of you that know me, even now I can be somewhat zealous. Well, if you knew me at 18, you could see how God has uh, grown in me. I probably started from a little further deficit than all of you. I wanted to see everyone saved. So aren't they 10,000 tracks with a friend? We cut them on school paper cutters. We put the school name on them without asking. And then we went to the mall. We handed one to every person in the mall and we stuffed every card in the Hallmark gift center with a track. And then on the way out of Hallmark, I saw a man who was not abusing his kid, but he was jerking him around by the arm. A lot like you might see me do to Judah today. 
and out of a good motive, wanting to see good things happen and everybody experience the love of God, zeal, but with no real knowledge to be founded in, I ran straight to a father of a child who was dressed in biker garb and grabbed him by his chest. It's full of chest and hair and everything that goes with it and lifted him to his toes and began to encourage him in the Lord. <laughs> what are you doing, man? Don't you know Jesus loves you? Well, obviously he knows now Jesus loves him, right? I just displayed it. It's so wonderful. You can have a kingdom goal and go at it the wrong way. You ever set out to spend time with your kids and ten minutes into it you had been so angry and short-tempered with them and everything else that you're like, well, they'd be better off if I just dropped them back off with mom. <laughs> None of you ever experienced that? <laughs> happens all of the time. How about marketing Christianity? How about that? We're going to compromise. We're going to boil it down to the lowest common denominator because we desire that everybody get saved. Well, what does it mean to say, friend? If you use just any kind of bait and you catch just any kind of fish and the kingdom will only accept certain kinds, what do you do? What about a marriage? Is it a godly desire for me to be married? Well, if it's based on selfishness from beginning to end, you can be married, which was a good goal, but be carrying it out in the wrong way. What have you done? You multiply the problem. You have two selfish people now, or you have individual selfish people, now you got too selfish people. How about a church car wash? Good idea? We're going to help the community. But if you're so mad somebody didn't bring the chamois or they scratched your car, that the whole time you're doing it, what the community sees is not good. Did we do a good thing or not? This is where I find myself. I very seldom am picking goals that are bad. It's just that I act badly while trying to achieve things. Am I the only one does that? You never wanted a special night with your wife. Never tried to set everything just right. But no matter where you went, it seemed like you were knee-deep in something you didn't want to be. Yeah. Okay. Turn with me then to Matthew 6. We're going to be in the 28th verse. I want to talk to you about kingdom goals done in the right way. We're going to be uh, in Matthew 6 in... 28. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little trust, so do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Let's go ahead and agree right now that God already knows that we need clothes. Some of us more than others, but we all need them. We need food. We need the basic necessities in life, don't we? We could call that our daily bread. We can all agree with that. But, that's a statement that means, however, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. 
Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day will have enough trouble of its own. What we want to do is we want to learn not to let all of our worry, all of our anxiety, all of our needs affect the way in which we pursue our kingdom goals. We watched the movie Flywheel on the way to camping. And I was very impressed with this. All of you should watch it. Don't go burn it. Go buy it. Okay? It would be good. The church made this with $20,000, and it started off a project not unlike our announcements that grew. It was a Baptist church. did a good, good job on this. Not only does it display salvation wonderfully, what I love about it is it displays the kingdom of God and righteousness. A man had cheated people in business for years. And it shows how he gut-wrenchingly goes through the process of realizing who he is and need for salvation and to get saved. That's where most people would have stopped it. But then it carries forth with the way God dealt with him to go back and set right the previous wrong. And as he did this, sought the kingdom and a right way of living, his righteousness, God gave him everything that he ever needed. But the movie does a great job of displaying your hurts, your wants, your fears, your worries about if I do what I am told is right, what will happen to me? The disciples found themselves in a very similar situation. You'll find it in the book of Mark, which you only have to hang a right a few pages for. It'll be in the sixth chapter. And this will bless you, plus it will be a subject that you don't hear me talk about very much. Matthew shared a word with me this morning that was shared with him by Cassidy. Isn't it neat how that happens? Cassidy hears a word from somebody. It's a good, pleasing, edifying, spiritually sound word. She shared it with her husband. Her husband shared it with a friend. And now I share it with you. Do you see how leaven can work its way through the whole loaf? Friends, that's not just salvation. This means that we share all the good things that God has given with us with the people that are around us. God never called you to be an island called bless me. He never did. If anything, He wants His people to unify so that those blessings get shared everywhere, yes. not be isolated. You're in Mark 6. Yes. yes. I want you to hear some of this. Jesus left there and went to His hometown, accompanied by His disciples. When the Sabbath came, He be... You know what? That's not where I wanted to be. I want to be in Mark 6, 30. 30. 6.30 The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to Him all that they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, He said to them, Come with Me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Do you hear the goal? Come with Me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Well, I never tell you to do that, do I? Never. I tell you, go, go, go. Jesus said it. Do you think it's a good goal? Of course it is. And I think he'd pursue that goal no matter what happened unless he had an opportunity for a better goal, don't you? So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So far, so good. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. How many of you would run on foot to the next church meeting? Do you think these people are hungry for something? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, He had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so He began teaching them many things. What was Jesus on His way to do? 
catch some shot up, some downtime. He just needed to recoup, you know, until he saw people with need. And then his need took a back seat to their need. See, we find out that if we want to pursue a kingdom goal in his righteousness, it is required that we practice self-sacrifice. All kingdom goals will require you to give of something of yourself to be able to benefit someone else. All of them will. And if it does not hurt, if you don't have any skin in the game, you're not really in the game. You're just playing church. Everything that's ever been accomplished for God, the blood of the martyrs, figuratively and literally, greased the wheels for the progress. You know why? This is how we make sure that it's His kingdom and not ours. Because they can look so, so similar. I just wanted to be rich so that I could do good things for God. How does that work for the rich people you know? Hmm. How about this? Let's see if Jesus gives His disciples a chance to do what He's doing. By this time, it was late in the day, so the disciples came to Him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus, there's a problem. It's late and they're they're hungry. Let's send them away. But He answered, you give them something to eat. Jesus wanted rest Himself, but when He saw people that had a need, He gave of Himself to meet that need. Now His disciples rightly point out a need. And what do they want to do? Let's send those people away so they can meet their own needs. And Jesus sees a perfect opportunity for education in this. Friends, none of this comes easily to us. It is so easy to sing a song when you're a kid, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. It is so easy to quote those scriptures. To do it in life is a priceless thing. I kept saying that while we were watching that movie. I couldn't stop it. A a son did not respect his father, but while his father was doing secret acts of righteousness, God made sure the son found out and the son began to respect his father. What is that worth to you? What is the love of your spouse and admiration of your spouse worth to you? There's only one way to get it. Self-sacrificing is the way to make the kingdom work. Jesus set that example. Watch. You give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. That's called counting the cost. And they're rightly determining that the cost is pretty high. Are we to go and spend that much on the bread and give them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. Where'd they get loaves? None of them are working. Do you think people were donating to their ministry because of them or because of Jesus? Why do you donate to a ministry? Do you donate because you love me or because you love Jesus? Jesus, right? So whose bread is this? It's Jesus. It's just been entrusted to them, right? Go get, go get what's already ours. Hmm. When they found out, they said five and two fish. So let me get this straight. We have people who were given something by Jesus. And Jesus says, go get what I put at your disposal. Let's do something with it. Doesn't that sound a little bit like your own households? Is what you have yours? Or is it from Jesus? See, that's a fundamental question to begin to contemplate. Because when we say, well, I give this to God, that contemplates that that's all that is God's. What I think the more appropriate Christian response is, everything I have is God's, 
And I'm setting aside this portion to show him that I trust him. Let's see how this plays out here. I told you this subject you don't hear from me much. We're going to put a right view on prosperity gospel right here, right now. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. What is he giving thanks for? People have said, he's saying a blessing. That is retarded. <laughs> Meaning literally, backward thinking. It is not right. Greeks bless things that they think are dirty to make them clean. It does not say He blessed them. It says He gave thanks. And even if your translation said He blessed them, that would be a Greek understanding of a Hebrew practice. You know what He's giving thanks for? What God had already given Him. The Jews say, Thank you, mighty God, that You bring the bread out of the ground for us to eat. Thank you, mighty God, that You give us the fruit of the vine. It's a blessing in that way. Not that they're taking something dirty and making it clean. He gave thanks for what was already in his possession. By the way, what is the kingdom goal here? It's to meet the needs of these people. Now we're talking about the kingdom way to do it. Not go grab a loan. It's not go find somebody else to feed them. It's not to tell them to go feed themselves. It's to take what is already in your hand. Can we already admit that five loaves and two fishes is not nearly enough? There's 5,000 people here. Is it not nearly enough? Do you think that God didn't know that? But what He wants is for you to put at risk what He's already given you. Self-sacrifice for something kingdom-oriented. This is the kingdom and righteousness in action. We sometimes seek the kingdom without making it in His right way. Listen to what they do. Five loaves and two fishes. Then Jesus directed them have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them. Jesus took what was his and gave it to someone else. He broke it and gave it. What do they do? His disciples sat before the people. They broke and gave. Can you imagine Peter's on one side, Andrew's on the other side? Let's make this John and Mario for a moment. And I break it. And I give you a piece of bread and you a piece of bread and you're looking and going, hmm, it's a piece of bread. And there's 5,000 people out there. When you get to the first one, how thick a piece are you going to pinch off? Yeah. Isn't that always the situation we're in? Lord, you gave me this and it's not enough. How big a piece do you want me to pinch off? But what happens to these people? Then He gave it to them and the disciples set them before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of fish and bread. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. What we find out here, saints, is that what we already have in our possession came from God. And we need to learn to give thanks for it properly. God gave them to us and He is asking us to give them or divide them to put our trust in Him into action for others. Self-sacrifice is the way the kingdom goes. 
As we do that, what happened as they each broke off a piece? Mario tore off a piece and gave it to Matthew. John tore off a piece and gave it to Steve. What happened? It evidently multiplied. And if they tore off a little piece, a little piece grew back. If they tore off a big piece, a big piece grew back. The question is not how much bread is in your hand, but how big is your God to fix what is torn off? This is where the phrase that is so abused comes from that says, you can't outgive God. It's true. If your goal is kingdom and your method is His righteousness. But you know what is not a method of righteousness? To give so that you will get back 12 basketfuls. Do you think that's anywhere in these guys' minds or do you think it's a surprise at the end? See, the surprise is when you self-sacrifice and put the kingdom before everything else, when you self-sacrifice and do it His way, regardless of how much it hurts, the surprise at the end is you always end up with more than you started with. The goal was to meet their needs, not to have your stuff multiplied. This is what makes that so devilish. It sounds right, but in its application, it's greed. In this application, it is self-sacrifice. It's the widow who gives the little bit of flour and oil she has, but it never runs out. It is not the widow who says, look, I'm going to treat God as GE Money Bank and see if I can get a good return. That's the devil, saints. It's the devil. It's wrong. And it's corrupting millions around us. It's made it so that preachers like me hate to even speak about money. But let's be honest. Money is on your mind from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed because you get in cars and you drive and you open refrigerators and you eat and you put clothes and all of those things on. But what was that Scripture? Seek the kingdom and His righteousness and all that stuff will get added to you. You know why what He had was already blessed? He was already in right standing with God. Sometimes the reason people are stuck in the positions that they're in is because they never get into a right standing with God with their finances. I have a hard time telling you that because I have to worry about the thought, what do they think my motive is? Well, you can see I'm not rich, thanks. I'm still preaching in t-shirts I've owned for more than eight years. I don't want your money. What I want you to learn to do is to treat everything you have as God and do what He says with it. And 10% is the starting place. It's the starting place. You say, but if I tear off that big a piece, what will happen to me? If you trust Him in that way, He will cause it to grow back according to what you took off. That is the truth of the prosperity gospel. The way that 2 Corinthians 9 says it is that He's able in all things to meet your every need so that in every way you'll have all things you need to abound. It talks about seed for the sower. The more seed you throw out, the bigger harvest you give. But I hate to even quote it because there's some devil out there quoting it trying to get you to give so you'll get more. That's not why I want you to give. I want you to give so your life will be blessed. Look with me at Deuteronomy because we're going to get into some Old Testament Scriptures and change our subject, but it is still about the kingdom and doing it the right way. Meeting others' needs is always the kingdom goal. Self-sacrifice is always the righteousness. Always. If it's not hurting you in some way, costing you something to advance the kingdom, you're not doing enough. You're not. Uh, Matthew and I have become so familiar with this that we get nervous if something seems easy. It's like, wait, Lord, I have these things that are precious to me. Which of them do you want? You know? 
I, I mean, we really learn to think like that. You in Deuteronomy? Yes. Yeah. Why don't you look at the 14th chapter? By the way, 2 Corinthians 9 is written on your tithe box back there. It is. Uh, Deuteronomy 14. Hear this. Starting in the 27th verse. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. The last part is the only part I have underlined in my Bible. And that's truthfully because when we read a verse, we usually want to know, how does this affect me? And it is saying something about Eric that I didn't circle the Levites and want to know how they were satisfied. I didn't circle the widows and the aliens and the fatherless and want to know how their needs were met. Whenever I read this verse, what I underlined is, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Now, you can throw a stone at me for that. I already did. That's why I brought it up publicly. Is the motivation to meet the widow's needs, the fatherless needs, the Levite's needs, or is it so that you'll be blessed? Mm-hmm. See, the first time I read this, what I got out of it is, if I want to be blessed, I need to give. I wasn't worried about anybody's needs. It's if I want to be blessed, I'll give. As true as that may be, and friends, that's as true as the law of gravity, I assure you. That's not why you give. You give because the kingdom is your first priority. The blessing is the result of the kingdom being your first priority. So is it wrong to want to be blessed? No, not at all. It's wrong for that to be your only motivation. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Would you all like to leave the subject of money and talk about something that I can talk more freely about? Sure. <laughs> Good. We'll do that. Turn with me then to Second Samuel. You're going to be in 2 Samuel, the 7th verse. In general, I want you to know that whether we're talking about money or not, whatever you have already belongs to God. When you divide it up, give it, tear it, whatever you do to put it into action on behalf of other people, that's something He can bless or multiply as it is given out. In the end, you will always have a bigger, more abundant, more fulfilled life than when you started. That's just the way that it works. So if your life is not as abundant, if it's not as big, if it's not as happy as you want it to be, you need to tear off bigger pieces of your life, not just your wallet. Sometimes people are not happy because they are sitting in a situation God cannot and will not bless. Say, but I'm pursuing a godly goal. But you are doing it the wrong way. You're not doing what God said to do. Well, I know He wants me to be married. Then honor Him in your relationships. But I know that He wants me to feed my family. Yeah, He does. You think He can do more with what you have or you can do more with it? But I know He wants me to have this big screen TV. Nothing's wrong with them all. I don't yet have a big screen TV, but I have one's coming. (laughs) What I'm trying to do, church, is free us from bad thinking. We think that we can't because we don't have. And God says you don't have because you won't trust. That's the way the relationship works. Yeah. Ever seen a kid that couldn't get his training wheels off of his bike? What a glorious day when they find that liberation. 
you as a parent can see that they can make it without the training wheel. But fear is keeping them out. How long are we going to wear training wheels in our life? That's really a great question. Are there training wheels on your finances? Is there training wheels on your social life? Is there training wheels on your relationship? Do you only let people get so close because one time you got hurt? Boy, that's brave. You should be commended for that. We won't even read the last chapter of Revelation says cowards won't enter the kingdom. Yeah, we're going to move on. You just thought we want to talk about something other than money. Second Samuel 7. Starting in the first verse. If you're taking notes, this would be sons of David. We're still under the same topic. Sons of David. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. You ever thought that? Whatever I want to do, God will bless because He's with me? I've made that mistake a few times. God will only bless you doing something with Him. He does not take what you do and bless it. He takes what He wants to do through you and blesses that. He does not take anything you want to do and bless it. He doesn't. I don't want to teach on the nations at the moment, but all you have to do is study how the nations came into being and which ones are a blessing on the earth and which ones aren't, and you can see that. You go back, back and look at the descendants of Hagar sometime. Listen what happened. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Praise God, the prophet didn't always just speak what came to mind. He gets a word from God. Go and tell my servant David this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Do you think that maybe God wanted people to see His dwelling as temporary? Just like He dwells in you as a tent, moving from place to place? Nevertheless, there is a place in God's plan where He will move from the temporary tent dwelling of your body into a permanent structure called the glorified body. So He's going to allow a permanent building here. But he wants to talk to David about it. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built a house for me? (laughs) Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following uh, the people. Yeah, we'll go ahead and read it. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress. Wicked people will not oppress. Do you hear God's constant cry for the oppressed people? This relationship with Israel started with them in Egypt, Him hearing their cry. What is he saying to David? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a house that will last forever. You'll build a house, blah, blah, blah. You'll never be oppressed. Them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares that to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you will rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring 
to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. So we have a son of David that is going to be born. Under this son of David, at some point, God will make sure nobody ever oppresses the Israelites again. There will be an everlasting house that this son of David will build. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He goes on to talk more about him. If you're David, you got the message. Okay, I'm going to have a son and he's going to build the house. David did a good thing. He laid up materials for Solomon to build a house. It is a God goal for Solomon to build a temple. God said it. He said he would be the one that would do it. It's also a God goal for Solomon to be the kind of man, a son of David, who doesn't promote oppression, who becomes a sort of prince of peace. In fact, the world history books record Israel's golden era as the 40 last years of Solomon's reign when they had peace on every side. And when you teach shadows and types, you teach that David is a type of Jesus, the warrior in the first coming, who spiritually laid waste to all the enemies. But at his second coming, he will be the reigning victorious king that has brought peace to all the people of God. That's how you usually teach that. But when I began to look further into Solomon's life, you find out he had a kingdom goal and he went about it the wrong way. I don't have time to read you Deuteronomy 17, but if you want to write your notes, you'll write Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 18. And what it says is, look, I want the king to write what I'm saying on a scroll. I want him to keep it with him at all times. He, uh, he is not to go to Egypt to get their chariots or horses. He is not ever at any time to amass large quantities of silver and gold. He is not, never, at any time to take many wives because they will turn his heart from me. Solomon had a God calling and a God purpose just like Moses did. Turn with me to 1 Kings 10. Tell me when you're there. Y'all help me, help me. Through the 26th verse. Solomon is supposed to have on his person, according to the book of Deuteronomy, a copy of this scroll that says don't do all of those things. He has a godly calling. He's of royal appointment. He's of spiritually royal appointment. A son of David meant to bring peace and prosperity to his people. A son of David that is supposed to rule by justice and mercy. You know, the Queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to come see Him. Jesus commented on it. And she spoke of righteousness, justice, and mercy because this is what the Son of David is supposed to be. He has His eyes on a kingdom goal. Solomon 26 verse accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses which he kept in chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Ku, and from the royal merchants purchased them at Ku. They imported chariots from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to the kings of the Hittites and the Armenians. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters and the Moabites. 
Uh, before we get any further in that, why do you want chariots if you're a king? You want chariots because they're the tanks of your day, right? Why uh, would you marry many foreign women? Teenagers, it's not what you think. It's to make peace treaties everywhere. Could you want security because of an army? Could you want peace treaties with the nations around you? Is there anything on the surface wrong with amassing silver and gold? I mean, it's how you meet people's needs. He didn't say he was distributing silver and gold so that it was as plentiful as cedar. He said that he was amassing it. Solomon had a kingdom calling, a kingdom goal, maybe one of the most important in history. And the world would say that he achieved success. In fact, they do. They call it Israel's golden age. And he failed God in his righteousness. He did not seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. How is he any different than Constantine in a manner of speaking? Who built a church, a church that the whole world points to as the church, but did it at the point of a sword. How is he any different than us who have God callings if we don't do them in a godly way? Maybe God wants you to run this company, whatever it is. But if you slander your boss to get there, you can be in the position that God called you to be in, but you didn't get there the way that God did. Do you know what happens to Solomon? But let me read you one more thing that just takes the case. It would be in Kings 9. Look at the 15th verse. Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple. How did the Israelites get their start? That's right. They were under forced labor conscripted by Pharaoh. Do you think God wants a temple built by slaves? No. Or built by people who love Him who are self-sacrificing? Say, Eric, are you saying Solomon's temple was not something God honored? Sure He did. He just didn't honor Solomon. You know, there's a place where Solomon sacrificed human beings with his foreign wives where the United Nations sits in Israel today. You know what they've named the mountain? The Mountain of Unfaithfulness. It's a monument to Solomon's failure. Because he went after something that was godly, but he did not do it God's way. Is there a warning there for us, saints? What is God always here? The cry of the oppressed. Do you think it makes any difference whether it's they or them? See, Solomon's people were one time them. They Egyptians oppressed them, the Israelites. Now this Israelite has become the they. He's oppressing someone. Now I tell you, I choked on something that I read in Isaiah. I choked on it. You want to know what I choked on? Yeah. You're going to have to wait. I'm going to tell you something else. The world says, the world says, do it, get it done any way that you can. That's in us. So when God tells us to do something, we will run over men, women, and children to do it. God is never like that. The world is looking for a son of David who will do it God's way. You know they call Jesus the son of David 17 times in the New Testament alone? Not to mention all the prophecies. We have to build the kingdom and build it God's way. The kingdom is torn from Solomon. God says, I said the son of David would always sit on the throne. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to split up the tribes of Israel. I'm going to give ten of them 
to Jehoshaphat. No, to Jeroboam, who turns out to be a bad guy. says, I'm going to put ten of them in his trust. And by the way, because of my promise to, Sol- uh, to David, not because of Solomon, I leave two in the care of the southern kingdom under Rehoboam, Solomon's son. God's promises could not come about in Solomon's lifetime because he didn't do it God's way even though he seemingly achieved the things that God wanted to for him. And Israel stayed in civil war for hundreds of years. Who came in and uh, first captured the northern kingdoms? Assyria. Wouldn't you think Assyrians are bad guys? Piles of skulls outside their city gate. Assyrians want to kill Jews. Right? Nimrod was the founder of the biggest Assyrian city, Nineveh. Syrians not good people. Turn to me to Isaiah 19. By the way, where did Israel get their start again? In what country? So if there were two symbols of people that had oppressed Israel, who had mistreated Israel, who had been enemies of Israel, could you find two bigger symbols than Egypt and Assyria? Probably not. Tell me when you're in Isaiah 19. Oh, then you beat me. Isaiah 19. We're just discoursing for a moment on God's way. What it means to care more about the kingdom than your own satisfaction. What it means to care more about the kingdom than you do about your own person so that you're willing to sacrifice. Lose your life that you might find abundant life. Look at uh, 19 starting in 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. I almost choked on that verse. Why? Why? Because these are bad people, right? These are people that we should put under uh, subjection. God always hears the cry of the oppressed. He's building a kingdom and it has to be in His righteousness the right way. And you know what the New Testament sheds light on that the Old Testament agrees with? He desires that all men everywhere be saved. So it's not okay to treat an Egyptian badly because they once treated you badly. What did Jesus say that we do for those who persecute us? Bless them. You see, the second son of David that would come, you can find it in Luke 6. Probably the last scripture I'm going to read, so don't give up on me. Wanted to build God's kingdom, and he wanted to build God's kingdom in the right way. By the way, Everybody loves Psalm 23, right? You remember how it ends? You've prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and blessings will be with me all the days of my life. Who are your enemies? What does it mean to prepare a table there? In their songs and in their liturgy, they knew that the good God, the God above every God, would take people who had once oppressed them and not put them under the Israelite feet but make them brothers with the Israelites eating at the same table. And that this would be goodness and blessing all the days of our lives. How can we pursue kingdom goals if we're going to step on other people to do it? Mm. Husbands, 
You want to do something for God, but you trample your wife in the process. It might be a kingdom goal, but is it in His righteousness? Why? She might have the direction that God wants you to go, but you have impacted your husband to the point where there can't be any joy in it. You see, it must be seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. Those two things have to work together. We cannot go after godly things in worldly ways. Are you in Luke 6? Look at 26. Uh, that's my Pope scripture. Let's look at 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Before we get to the next verse, how could you do that? Because God always hears the cry of the oppressed. God will always look at the piece that was torn off of your loaf of bread and meet it if you are doing what He told you to do in the way He told you to do it. <coughs> is it any harder for Him to provide for you a cloak when somebody else took yours than it is to provide a piece of bread because you split yours up among people who needed it? It's the same thing. What I'm saying is that in every area of our life when we allow for self-sacrifice, we allow for others to take advantage of us even. God will meet those needs. So what are we scared of? Do to others as you would have them do to you. Is that what Solomon did? Solomon built a church, if you will. But did he do to others what he would have them do to him? Just the opposite. So what is his church worth in the end? See, this is the kind of thing we need to examine. Sure, we're accomplishing something for God. In the end, is it something that God is proud of, though? The way that we did it. I know all of you have pure motives. I mean, in your goal setting and your direction. I've sat in your homes. We've done Shalom by Eat together. But how are we going to get there? See, that, that's where the really the rubber hits the road these days. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them and do good to those who do good to them. What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Solomon was a son of David, but he didn't act like a son of the Most High. So the second son of David came, and when people cried out to them, even at his own expense, he met their needs. And those who followed him most closely, at their own expense, put the needs of the kingdom before any needs they had. And how do you think about them? You revere them. What is that worth? the admiration of the godly, being in the assembly of the saints. What is something like that worth to you? What is it worth that your wife looks at you and knows that you're a man of God? What is it worth that your children see that? It only comes one way. We have to be willing to sacrifice that the kingdom work gets done. Not enough to have kingdom goals and do it worldly ways. 
Kingdom goals are always met through self-sacrifice. Liberation, meeting needs, all of those things are righteous and kingdom goals, but they only come when it costs you something because faith is the currency that the kingdom moves on. And if you don't have to give up something, you are never showing trust. The reason that this church wants you to tithe, the reason that this church wants you to do every other thing that the Word says is it is an expression of your trust. And that is the currency that the kingdom works on. I'm not trying to amass anything here except a bunch of people who will stand with me on that day. Amen? Amen. All right, kingdom and righteousness. Seek those, and what happens afterwards? You get everything you ever needed. It'll be more than you wanted. Y'all stand up and we'll pray.